So, it's been a little while since I've podcasted. I've had so many things that I should have podcasted. And I'm still optimistic that I'll have some some people to, to chat with on here. But for now, these are thoughts that I feel I need to get out myself. And I do it for myself because uh, we live in a society today where you understand that you're showing as much of yourself as you want the world to see. But it's interesting because since I was fortunate enough to study history as a, uh, as a teacher, as an undergraduate, we understand that this is our time capsule. This is how we show who we were. It's different than looking at those pictures of grandma and grandpa or great-grandma and grandpa in the black and whites and assumed who they were. Uh, you have a chance to show who you are. And so I think this is an opportunity to be as candid as possible. I'm currently working on... Uh, my fourth book. I'm working on my third and fourth book at the same time. Uh, and this one is about ism, specifically classism. I have for some time said classism is the greatest ism and the most significant ism of all time. And it, it is uh, constantly hidden under other isms to make those other isms seem more relevant than more relevant than the, the the institution, the foundational premise of classism itself. There was a video I watched um, recently, and it was about a talk that uh, current independent Senator Bernie Sanders gave in 2003. It looks like it was either high school or um, a college, maybe a community college, where mo- the audience looked mostly to be like a mixed minority thing. It looked like it was more white people than any other race, but it looked like it it was a mixed crowd. And he had some points on there that I thought were pretty uh, interesting because while he didn't necessarily address classism as the the top level of uh, basically the banes of our society, he uses other isms and accuses uh, the Republican Party specifically of of divisiveness in their messages and mantras to win elections and he himself also uses classism within his own messages which he actually does endorse classism in a sense where you find your place in classism and you find your way to benefit the most so there's a couple of points and then i'll add the 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 sound of the video at the end it's about five minutes and i i want to address first with classism, there's a belief that college is necessary to be in the middle class. He often uses the word middle class. He wants to use middle class as a way to make people feel better about where they are because you're not on the bottom and you're not on the top. You're in the middle. And in the middle, that makes people contented because they're not last, they're not first, and they can see everything that's going on around them. Hopefully, they can catch on the coattails of people who are advancing to the next level but they also are in a big enough group where they can grab on the people if they feel like they're sliding to go down to a lower class. Um, One of the things they use, and this is a constant American ideal, I'm unsure about the rest of the world, but based on the university systems and how college is is viewed based on what I've seen in my lifetime, and he said there's a belief that college is necessary to be in the middle class. I personally believe college is a false premise, uh, because it's used as your savior. I went to college and I was also in the military 
And so I did trade school while I was in the military. And I'll say this, college has its value. College is good for the culturalization and socialization for people to understand uh, better uh, what they may want to do. But college, the necessity behind college would be lessened if uh, K through 12 education was uh, revamped and improved to deal with specific issues of the day. And to actually have students come out more life prepared. It is my opinion. I've been a teacher in public and now private schools for about 10 years. And I see schools uh, generally used to socialize students. But very few uh, use it in a sense to use it to advance themselves while they're in practice. Um, so while I'm not going to disparage college because my college experience is, was a great one, my military education was a great one, and my other training, OJT and et cetera, were great ones. And I, I say this, education is what's necessary to move yourself from a lower class to a middle class to an upper class. And I'll go further and say that education will make you classless. It'll be impossible to, for people to classify you as a person specifically because or classify your value specifically because education is infinite. And if you are a person who shows you are educated or shows your education through your activities of uh, endeavor to, to, to win money, you can eliminate college in essence. Because if you actually look in college, many college professors, one, are not trained teachers, but two, many college professors are not necessarily college educated. Now, you should, I don't think the statistic is that high, but I think it's significant that there are a number of college professors who teach college students um, are not college educated at all. And I think that's a valuable thing to understand about college. A next point that he made was about uh, minimum wage opponents. And I thought this was a, a, an interesting point uh, for those against minimum wage. Now, for me, uh, I, I understand the need for minimum wage specifically when, when it was enacted uh, some probably 70, maybe 70 years ago in the United States. I understood the purpose of it. It was the minimum wage to make sure people could survive. And, but it was realistically... Uh, many believe socially was meant for, well, today many people believe it's for children, but uh, when it was originally created, it was meant to keep people basically off of government programs where you could have a specific number uh, where you classified this class of people or this amount of money you make makes uh, you ineligible to receive subsidies or anything like that or assistance from the government. Uh, minimum wage has gone beyond that because in a capitalistic society where we have a free market, um, businesses decide what they pay their uh, workers based on the value that that worker produces for them. So if a, produ a worker can produce uh, $10,000, you're clearly not going to pay them the $10,000. You're going to pay them uh, what your, your, um, what it costs you to employ them minus whatever profit you see as important to you. But... It's interesting because when he talks about the people who are opposed to minimum wage, he, he says something along the lines that there are people who are opposed to who would eliminate minimum wage altogether. And I, I look at that and it's interesting if you look at the dynamics of history and uh, legislation in the, in the U.S. government, um, 
specifically dealing with slavery, where you can say, okay, well, uh, slavery is outlawed, but you can essentially employ slave labor if a person is jailed because you essentially lose your rights. And that's interesting because if you look at the companies or corporations or specific fields uh, in in economic society of who uses jail labor because people who are in jail do work and they do earn uh, a small amount of money but they do earn money and there are corporations that use that labor in the jail to specifically uh, sell products at uh, a profitable markup so I think that is also a valuable note to take point of when we talk about minimum wage in societies uh, the next point he talked about was health care, and I thought it was interesting because there's a question of should everyone have health care? And my opinion is, well, if I want to stay healthy, it is to uh, my interest that everyone around me is healthy. So I would want most, if not all, of the society that I interact with to have health care to keep them baseline healthy where they don't pass on any communicable diseases which also goes into the uh the debate about vaccines and etc but i believe that for another time but my question specifically is about healthcare and should it be a for-profit industry and we think about well healthcare is meant to keep people alive um it's meant to uh take care of people and we understand that when I said to keep people alive, that we look at our healthcare industry, and our healthcare industry specifically is really a sick care. You don't use it until you're not well. And so, technically, healthcare is a, a misnomer, one. But two, it, it actually uh, is missing the boat because if we're really thinking about healthcare, healthcare should include gym memberships, personal trainers, and things like that, and maybe supplements to help improve whatever deficiencies you have, but our health care is about when you're sick, you do what's necessary to get yourself healthy again. But then we never address what got us sick in the first place, truthfully. And so should it be for-profit in uh, entity industry? Uh, it depends. Uh, if keeping people alive is for-profit, then that's that's your opinion. Uh, the Most of the profit, based on what I've seen, and I could be mistaken, uh, is that the health, the profit in the healthcare industry really is derived from the R&D portion. So the research and development for healthcare is really where the people make the money and scientists and so forth need to be paid. You need to pay for the equipment and things like that. But uh, you would think that it kind of falls under nonprofit because it goes for the public good, but because they recognize that the, the power of the paper, the money is in the cure, then you charge a specific amount for the research and development which is normally above and beyond what is necessary and then you charge above and beyond for the actual product that is created from that and that's where you get your double profit and that's why healthcare industries like drug sale reps hospitals um, insurance agencies make a lot of money because you're, you're you're doing all that upcharge for research and development to help take care of people for infirmities they have but again, we're still ignoring the issue of actual health care, taking care of your health while it's in good health, how to improve it so you can build up immunity and other things like that. So you have a less of a need to be in a hospital for surgeries, for uh, for have a need for drugs and et cetera. So I think that's a, uh, an interesting point to address. The next one is uh, the privatization of education. Now, I've often uh, waffled back and forth on this because I, there's times where I believe that if you made schools 
as individual entities a for-profit thing or had a sort of uh, mixed bag of non-profit, for-profit, which I don't know how you would name that, but a mix of for-profit, non-profit, that schools could potentially perform better. But uh, again, it's valuable to know who's in charge of that and what their intention is. So, for instance, um, if education is privatized, uh, what would the metric be? for learning like what 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 do you want the kids to learn because if education is privatized that means you have to pay for it and if you have to pay for it or the government subsidizes or whatever how does the person who's investing their money in that school get a return on that because school is meant to give you a return of education and that education is supposed to turn you into a producing citizen so what's the metric for learning i mean we use sat tests and grades and stuff like that but those are not true metrics for learning because they just give you a mark to make you feel good, but does it show what you produce? Uh, as as far as into the world, or oh, what good that has for society? Because me getting an A, did that help society improve? It could, because it can improve my sort of morale mentality, but directly it doesn't. So we're looking at an industry that you have. Basically, it's like a certificate of deposit or... Um, a bond where I'm investing for anywhere from 12 to 16 years into something. And I'm hoping that that, that 60, 80, $100,000 that I've put into that turns into a person who produces $300,000, which, uh, really, uh, it, it may happen. It may not. But the goal is when that person is done, we don't want them to need the government to pay for anything. So that's where privatization of education, where I'm asking, well, what is the metric for learning? And, uh, if it is privatized, what's the what's the profit motive play? Like, what role does the profit motive play inside of the the privatized school? Because I mean, you have to fund things. You have to pay for books, even though books are uh, generally obsolete. If you're not paying for books, you're paying for software. You're paying for hardware to have those educational resources on. Then you're paying for the the, the basic things like electricity, water, uh, maintenance. Uh, of the building and of the things within the building and then you have to pay for the staff and uh, any extracurricular things that benefit the general morale of the the student body and the people who work there so the privatization of education is is interesting because uh, I, I I can see where there is a benefit but because we live in a society that's generally a for-profit motive it's uh, a free market it's it's about capitalism the goal is uh survival of the fittest truthfully and if you're doing education survival of the fittest doesn't necessarily match because you want every the point of education is so everyone becomes baseline fit and if you have survival of the fittest you can't have people fail in education that they're, they're contrary ideas the next point is that i saw based on uh, a couple of points you brought up was Social Security, Medicaid, Medicare, etc. The only point I want to make out specifically is about Social Security. And I have a question. There is a specific tax on paychecks that I remember for Social Security. So as individual citizens, when you become a worker, you uh, there's a portion of your paycheck that comes out directly for your Social Security. And then they send you statements, uh, probably annually, quarterly, I'm not really sure, but I know they send you statements about how much money you've put into the system. And so my question is, is that how, how have we allowed or how is it seen 
uh, that social security is an entitlement when it's something you pay for. Essentially, you're giving them money and then they hold that money and then they pay it back to you when you reach a certain age. And it's interesting because we know how that works. Basically, the government is uh, working like a bank, right? The government takes your deposit and then they use your deposit money that you're not going to use for some 50 year, uh, well, if depending, 30, anywhere between 20 and 40 years, you're not going to use that money. So they're, they're using, they're betting that 20 to 40 years, they can make enough money to pay for other things while they uh, hold your money and say, hey, we'll give you a small interest rate on that and then pay you out for the rest of your life. So the 20 to 40 years you put in will pay you for the next 20 to 40 years because there's an assumption that you are going to die. So if you retire at 65, they don't expect you to live past 85. They wanted, they said, hey, you gave us 20 years worth of money. We'll give you 20 years worth of money after you retire at 65. So they expect you to make it to 85 and then your money will run out and you're dead. And so we don't have to pay you anymore. But the issue that have, has come is that many times it feels like one there, whoever's doing the accounting hasn't adjusted for uh, inflation. Second part is, is that what they're doing is they've seen that money. They have that money from 300 million people now. And they're like, oh, well, we have this money. Let's go do this thing and this thing and this thing. And we think investing in those things will produce a great return. So then we can just put that money right back. And it's the equivalent of uh, basically working in the red because we think uh, that's how it works. Well, the government is a nonprofit entity and they're trying to function like a for-profit uh, while failing because they have people who run the government and do budgets and pass laws that don't necessarily understand finance and funding. So they take gambles with your money because it's not their money. In addition to that money, there's obviously other taxes that pays them. So they, they feel no risk. Uh, on it because it's not their money. It's the equivalent of when banks uh, go under. And that's where, if you look at the, after the Great Depression, when they created the FDIC to do that. But the federal government doesn't have an FDIC for your Social Security, which is something that you probably should think about, which uh, is important because uh, if there's, there's the narrative now that is becoming very, uh, normalized, which you should be bothered by or concerned with, that, I would say, not concerned with, but it should, it should raise a flag for you, is that there's people roughly my age and their 30s that are expecting and accepting that when they reach retirement age in 30, 35 years, that their Social Security won't be there. So they have come to accept the narrative that the money that there is being taken from them for the last 10 years or so and the money that will be continue to be take for, taken from them for the next 20 years will not be there. So they've accepted that the government is taking their money and will never give it back to them. And, and that, that, that's amazing as a proposition to understand that you are accepting that Social Security or this program that they promise your retirement will not be there for you when it's your turn. But you've given them the money that should be that should that should indict every person in the government, because at that point you have to really look and say, what are these people doing in the government? Who are these people and why are they continually being reelected? I won't talk about term limits. That's my my thing thing right there. I've taken a long time on that. I'm going to move to the next point where he talked about tax breaks for the rich and corporations. And I think this is interesting because this is a trickle down economics thing. Where if people believe if you give rich people more money, they're, 
they'll they have more money to put in the public. Not that they're incentivized because they're not incentivized to give to do anything but make more money. And so the only reason they invest in anything below them on sort of monetarily is they see a return in it. And so trickle down economics in general only works if those people at the top who are trickling down that money feel there is a monetary benefit from it. So if I give you five dollars, I can see the drive hustling you. That five dollars that I gave you, you'll turn that into twenty dollars. Then they're totally with that because they know every time they give them money, there's a return. But see, the reason trickle down economics fails is because people who are rich have little faith in the people below them. For two reasons. One, that uh, people who tend to have less money than them are willing to accept anything for survival. So that's where the minimum wage point comes back again. I can pay you garbage wages because you're going to do whatever is necessary. You work three, four jobs to do what's necessary instead of demanding from me that I pay you what you're worth. And point number two, uh, unless you have something I want, I have no reason to spend my money on it. And rich people really do do that. Uh, we always look at, and uh, well, not we, but there's there's this narrative out there that we look at people who are richer than us, and we try to learn from them. The greatest thing we learn from them is that they tend to not spend money or uh, on things that are not of value to them, or they don't spend their own money. If they do buy things that are <laughs> uh, things that they may not necessarily need, which I think is a cool point, but uh, it's interesting because this tax break for rich and corporations is interesting. For this reason, uh, there's a narrative also that people often say taxation is theft. And if taxes are eliminated or reduced, so you give a tax break or whatever for a corporation or rich people, the, the logic that makes the most sense is if I'm going to reduce a tax, then I have to eliminate or change or alter the service that that tax provided. So if I'm going to lower my taxes on a corporation from 5% to 4.8%, I have to account for that uh, two-tenths of, of a percent as lost revenue that went into a program. So where does that two-tenths of a revenue come from? What program are we eliminating when we reduce your taxes? Because we have to go net zero on these things. And the thing is that the government does, and this is where we have this current deficit we're talking about right now, budget deficit, is we reduce the taxes, but then we don't reduce any programs. And when we don't reduce any programs, again, since the lawmakers don't have any true stake in the game. They don't care. So if I reduce your taxes, but then I don't change my spending on the other side, then if I wasn't in the red, I now go in the red. And I may go in the red even more because the thing about it is, is that we, we've had uh, the, the reduction of revenue and those corporations and entities, they keep that money because they don't know if the government's going to um, take money from them again, or they find a way to hide that money or move that money into a, a way where it stays within the company. So when you give me a tax break as a corporation or a rich person, I'm going to find a way to move that money before you get a chance to realize, one, what you did was dumb because you didn't. I saw you give me a tax break and I saw you didn't cut a program. So that means that you're going to ask me for that money back later. And so since I don't want you to ask me for that money back later, or if you do ask me, I want to say I don't have it, I'm going to put that money somewhere else so you can never get it from me again. And hence, me staying in the black and me being profitable. But again, the government is run by people who don't necessarily understand these things. And uh, it, it's sort of the, the classic classism of the rich stay rich. And the poor maybe don't stay poor, but they will stay there for a while. Um, so the uh, so 
from that, he he's specifically at the one minute and 57 second of video, he talks about how Republicans do this. And I, I, I dare say because we have a two-party system, it's more than Republicans. It is Republicans, Democrats, and the two-party system in itself is the, the essential way classism in the United States works right now. So he says that they divide people up by races. So they use affirmative action as a way to uh, divide people by races and say, oh, that black person took my job. What's interesting about affirmative action, the statistics have showed, shown that uh, the benefits of affirmative action in the United States actually benefit white women than any other group of people as we look at specific uh, group breakdown. So... So again, while we try to throw it, oh, well, it's about the black people or the Hispanic people taking my job, white women benefit the most. So that means that those black, those white men who say, oh, this, they're taking my job, you then have white women who are normally their spouses benefiting from that. So it's, it's, a, it's a, a false narrative in the sense of one, they're benefiting from it if we're just gonna talk about race. But the second part is that it also talks about an underlying thing about sexism, because when a man says that, oh, well, X, Y, Z is taking my job while they're the women, the white women, the women of their race are benefiting. What they're looking at also is that they don't feel like those women should be making the money. They're the breadwinners. They're supposed to have the money. And it, it, it makes them f sort of feel in, in a place of inferiority because for some men, they feel inferior when their women make money. I ain't one of them, but that's what they feel. The next thing they do is by work, working class. So you have white collar and blue collar where we look at people who have white collar jobs as better people, more uh, purple, uh, uh, important people in society because they work in the office and they dress up, whereas blue collar people, they do grunt work and things like that. But I think the interesting part about that is, is that the foundation of America comes from blue collar, but now we look at blue collar as uh, lower than uh, than um, the standard one because blue collar is not college educated. And again, that's that false uh, premise. Generally, blue collar is not uh, college educated. So it's a false premise of what college is supposed to do. And it's interesting because I, I have a friend who once said to me and they're they they're a blue collar worker, quote unquote. And I'm basically a white collar worker. I went to university, working a school, et cetera, et cetera. And they said to me, man, you know, you live the life that I want. And this guy makes double what I make. And I look at that and I'm like, that's so crazy that you make double what I make, but then I'm living your dream. And I just thought it was funny because there's a devaluation of blue collar. Yes, because it tends to be more physical, but... The return seems pretty, pretty good. So we have to understand that. And then especially since there's this there's this narrative in America about bringing the manufacturing back. Blue collar work is what sustains society and people don't under, understand that. And if they do understand it, they, they, they devalue it. The next point, which I kind of brought up in the race point, is gender. So women versus men. And. They say, well, you know, Republicans divide men and women. And it's it's so interesting because the, the issue that comes up, obviously, is just women's rights over their bodies and, and conservatism, which essentially is, hey, let's do stuff like it was in the past. But if we do stuff like it was in the past, we never advance to where we are today in the future and going forward. So I think it's very interesting. 
to look at those points and say, oh, well, do you divide people up by race, by working class and by gender? You do. And that's about classism in itself. And they create subsets. So if we can't divide you up by this one thing, we're going to divide you up by this one thing. We will find a way for you to be an opponent with somebody that you have more in common with than you have differences with. And so there were some questions that I saw as he talked about it, like one question, should everyone have health care? I, I think that's a valid question. I, I'd say yes, but I'm sure there are people who have a yes with an asterisk caveat to it. And then he asked the question, should funding for education be uh, higher or lower? He gave them an and or, which is sort of a sort of a, a, a false premise again. Because the question should really be, should funding for education be improved? And is the funding for education being used properly? Those questions are better questions because then you look at the system in itself. And I asked that question, do only Republicans do this? And it's, it's false because Democrats do it too. It's because we have a two-party system, which I think does none of us a favor. Uh, another point that he brought up in there was about abortion pro pro-abortion and anti-abortion, which is interesting because abortion is more than just what it is on the surface, the verbiage, pro-life versus pro-choice. And that's more specific because, okay, you have pro-life, people who are against abortion, against killing a baby for any means necessary. We don't care what happened, do not kill the baby. And I understand people doing it because if you say that, you're saying you value life, so we don't want to take life away if there's a way to maintain it. But then you have the pro-choice. Well, the pro-choice is about the circumstances that come about that created that life. Was the woman raped? Will that woman die to have that baby? So now you have to choose a life. And because women are the ones who can carry who carry the baby, it it realistically should be, in my opinion, on them on what they should do. If we have a choice to choose what we can do, what medical treatments we can do on our body. For, a, for example, like having DNRs if you're about to die or um, assisted suicide and things like that. If we have the, the, the option to choose for those things, why do women or why are women subjected to a different set of standards of can they choose what they do to their body? Now, yes, there are some women that may use uh, abortion as uh, birth control, but that's also because birth control and other women's products that benefit women sort of on women's health specifically are either expensive or inaccessible to them. And that all goes all the way back to the should, uh, should everyone have health care sort of thing. Uh, the next point that he had was guns. So you're pro-gun or anti-gun. And again, it's we, we, we dumb down arguments because with guns, it's about who has access to guns and what, what guns are accessible. And those are the, the, the greater arguments because I understand and I accept having a gun for protection in your home. I understand and accept having guns for hunting, even though people may disagree with that. But at some point, hunting has always been a part of our society because uh, we're, we're omnivores and so we eat meat. But the, you can ask the question, well, why are you hunting if there's places that their business is to have uh, meat for you? So... Uh, while I'm neither pro nor anti, I understand what, what's being said is about who has access to guns and what types of guns are accessible. Not restricting people, but being aware that uh, guns essentially were created as weapons of war. 
and then we turned them into other things, and we turned it into sport, we turned it into protection. And protection is about war in itself, so we have to still be aware of that. Uh, the other point he brought up was the division of people by religion. And uh, this in a country that specifically points out that they don't endorse religion in its uh, foundational documents, the fact that most people uh, accept that subliminally that America is a Christian nation and they're functioned by Christian ideals, the religion point is one that is just curious in itself because uh, when it's a big deal, if a Jewish person becomes a president or an elected official, or if a Muslim person becomes an elected official, when those things are the headlines above the quality of the person, the ideas of the person, the quality of the character of the person, it, it, it says something in, in, in essence about the system of governance and how we view people in society. Uh, there was a division about gay and straight people. And again, the, uh, do we really care about what people do in their private lives? And if we do care about that, I mean, what happened to the right to privacy? And why do you care what someone else does in their private time unless it's illegal, right? Uh, and then you have uh, pro-war, anti-war, and where you're seeing well, people who are anti-war are seen as unpatriotic or you're soft. Because you like, hey, let's find a different way to find a solution instead of shooting this person in the face, and I mean, the, the, and we believe that that's a show of of strength. If we can beat someone up, they'll be afraid of us. But the thing is, uh, that fear generally generates an, an a strength and energy from ourselves and from our opponents that is unchartable and because it's unchartable why you may believe you can win a war because you're bigger stronger faster or you have more resources uh that person who whose fear level is higher than yours can cause you a significant problem regardless of how many resources resources you have and we can hearken back to the american revolution and where the smaller team won it can go back to uh the vietnam war where the smaller team uh surprise the bigger team so we have to understand that while we go pro and anti-war we have to understand the dynamic of who we're fighting with why we're fighting with them and what level of fear do they have when they're fighting um he made a narrative also about um how in general what the narrative tends to sound like when it's publicized in the media is white workers versus everyone else which i can i actually see and i can kind of agree with and it's essentially where there's a lot of white people who are called to the carpet and they have to apologize for their whole race uh, for some things, which I, I think is absolutely insane. Whereas it does happen on the other side where specific ethnicities are uh, given the attributes of the outliers of their society. So all Mexicans are rapists, Latino people are X, Y, Z, black people are lazy, black people are criminal, black people are violent. And, you know, the, the outliers in that ethnicity or race have to live with those attributes of the people who are uh, the, the sort of the lower dregs of their, 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 their race or ethnicity. And I think it's interesting because a friend of mine told me uh, that the white male is the most discriminated demographic in the United States. And while I can see the perspective on that, based on the narrative that's in public. It also is interesting because while 
if you say they're the most discriminated demographic in the United States, you also have to understand they're the most powerful demographic in the United States. So uh, when you wear the crown, most everyone comes at you and you make the rules. So people are going to come at you about the rules. So while if you're in power, there will be a movement at some point against you. And so uh, if you want to wear the crown, you have to understand that there are going to be people who come for you. Why? Because we've created a society of versus this versus that. And we've created a society that specifically has classism. And if we look at class in the United States, the white male is on the top tier. And that's why if a, I would believe if a white male in general sees a black male or a woman or Hispanic uh, or any other ethnicity other than their specific ethnicity rise above them, they call into question, why, are this, why is this person above me? Not because they believe the person is inferior, but because society is set up. Society has shown them that they are supposed to be on top. So then if they don't feel like they've done anything wrong, those people have to have done something wrong in order to circum circumvent them or pass them or supplant them, specifically because the rules of the game don't work like that. I'm not supposed to be below them. And so uh, my basic ending point, because I thought this was a very interesting video, my basic ending point of it is basically uh, he constantly, while he says Republicans do this, he advocates regularly for classism in itself. He supports the system. He's like, hey, this is how you fit in the system. And I think we have to understand that there's a greater level of, uh, that we all can achieve if we understand past this point of you can be more than classism and you are in the class by yourself if there is classism be unique and individual to yourself and you can move to a level beyond that of whatever class people have tried to put you in if you're pro this or anti that or your race does this or your the color of your shirt or the color of it does that or how you feel about reproductive rights or guns or all those things. So understand that when I write this book about classism, I think it'll be something where I just I'm lending my voice to help people understand that you're beyond that and that not only are you beyond that, you can do something about it in your lifetime. So. I appreciate the time. I'm going to play this Bernie Sanders thing so you can hear what I'm talking about. And uh, I got this video from Now Politics. It was from Bernie Sanders in 2003. And I would say now um, he's a little more to the left based on what I've seen recently from him. So enjoy. Question is, how's the Republican Party do so good? Now I'm going to tell you something that very few people in Congress will tell you. If you are the Republican leadership, and this is what your goals are, your goals are to give huge tax breaks to the very richest people in this country. Your goals are ultimately to privatize Social Security so that Wall Street can make money from that. Privatize Medicare so the insurance companies can make more money. Privatize education. Do away with public schools. 
If those are your goals and you said that to the American people, you think you got a lot of lower? There are many members of the Congress today, Republicans, who not only will not raise the minimum wage, which is five fifteen an hour. You know what they will tell you, honestly? They believe in abolishing the minimum wage. Did you know that? Check it out. Telling you the truth. So that if Americans can work for three bucks an hour or two bucks an hour, not a problem. Now, if you had an agenda like that and you went before the American people, tax breaks for the rich, destruction of Medicare, destruction of Social Security, as we know it, lowering the minimum wage or abolishing it, how many votes do you think you'd get? Forgive the commercial, but it'll be back in three seconds. Also, forgive the background noise. It is what it is. Could get <laughs> not a whole lot. Maybe the richest one percent would vote for you, but that's not a lot of votes. So what do I do? Got a problem? You package it. How do you package it? And here I want you to pay attention to me, because this is bad stuff. I don't mind debating people who say I was on the Hannity show, Sean Hannity, yesterday, and, and Hannity, extreme right wing guy. He thinks we should. He loves these tax breaks for the rich and so forth. So we had a little bit of a discussion about that. Actually, it was a loud discussion. But I don't mind people who are upfront about that. Okay, Give the rich more tax breaks. But that doesn't win you elections. So this is what you do. What you do is divide people up. When you ask me your question, how do I get elected? I said, I try to bring people together. We fight for women's rights. We support the rights of minorities. We support the rights of workers. We bring the majority of people together. And occasionally, honest people will have differences of opinion. In this room, there will be differences of opinion. But everybody in this room is in agreement that everybody should have health care, right? Question number two, should we increase funding for education or should we lower funding for education? Raise your hand if you think we should increase funding for education. Okay, you're on the side of the vast majority of Americans. Okay. So on those issues, we bring people together. Now, what do the Republicans try to do? And they use it in what we call, uh, you know, kind of language that they don't, not upfront about. What do we do? We divide people up by races. Affirmative action becomes one issue. All them black people are getting the jobs that we white people used to have. Split people, working class, white against black. Instead of working together to create decent jobs for all. Those uppity women now, they want the right to choose. We'll split people on the abortion issue. We'll split people up on the gun issue. We'll split people up on religious issues. You follow what I'm saying? So you split people up and then they end up, if you're a middle-class person, voting against your own interests, and the rich go laughing all the way to the bank. Okay? And they very often play white workers off against everybody else. And we try to bring people together to say, look, we're all in this boat together, whether you're black or white, whether you're Hispanic, whether you're Muslim, whatever you may be, everybody needs health care. How do we create a health care system that works for all people? Not divide people up. Everybody knows that the kids, young people, do not make it into the middle class unless they have a decent college education. So how do we make college education accessible to all people? Not an expensive proposition. A tiny, tiny fraction of the president's tax breaks for the rich, if we put into financial aid, would make sure that every young person in this country could go to college without going deeply into debt. You know what? The vast majority of the people support us. But in order to do that, we've got to bring everybody together. And many of these, not all, and I'm not here to disparage all Republicans. Some very decent people happen to be conservative. I respect that. But some people who I don't respect will play off women against men, black against white. Oh, the gay issue, very, very big issue. Okay? 
straight against gay, right? We're all supposed to hate gay people, so we split that group up. And then the argument, some of us are not patriotic. We had concerns about the war in Iraq. I voted against giving the president authority to the war in Iraq. Well, that makes us unpatriotic. We hate America. Divide those things up. And that's how they succeed. And they succeed with the help of the media. Because the media will not talk about how, in a sense, the common problems that Americans face and how we bring people together. And that's what I believe. I believe that on issues like everybody in this room thinks, I think, that instead of giving tax breaks to the rich, we should increase federal aid to education. Anyone disagree with that? Well, you know what? Most Americans agree with that. All of you think that every American should be entitled to health care. I suspect most of you think we should not have a trade policy which allows corporations to throw American workers out on the street and run to China. Most Americans agree with that. And our job is to bring people together on common interest and some of these extreme right-wing people. You watch the issues that they talk about. Affirmative action they use to divide. The issue of abortion they use to divide. The issue of guns they use to divide. And our job is to say, let's focus on basic economic issues. How do we expand the middle class? This is a great country. Why is it the average American is working longer hours for low wages than 30 years ago? Let's talk about that. Okay? Okay, that was a long answer to a good question. I apologize for going on too long. So, and the end of all of that, with this 45 or so minutes with the choppy video and a rudimentary uh, system of podcasting, uh, the last point I think worthy of noting is the point about the media. Uh, one day we'll realize that when the media changed from a loss leader for news or for, for TV networks and other entertainment entities, NBC, CBS, etc., when it changed, when CNN was created and news became a for-profit entity, what happened is, is that the, the middle of the road, the unbiased journalism disappeared because they saw there was money to be made in news and reporting the bad things and sensationalizing the the negative and making sure that their people scandalized that's what leads their ratings because at that point they have to make money to stay alive and so they have to make you watch and they have to make you watch and the only way they can make money off their ad revenue is to make people watch so understand that if the news media could ever go back to a uh, non-profit enterprise, that's where you'll get the, the truest, realest news. But uh, it, it may be unlikely. I think the one of the safest, surest places that can challenge news media, the for-profit news media, is social media. Social media is uh, it's non-profit. People post information on there all the time for free. And... So now it's about the responsibility of the individuals who participate in social media of having their own journalistic integrity uh, where they report the truest things with, <laughs> with facts and uh, references and supports to what they're reporting. I laugh because it's, it's generally unlikely, but social media can actually combat the for-profit media surface. So I leave you with that. Uh, I actually enjoyed that. That was very therapeutic for me. Uh, and it leads me into writing my book about classism or ism specifically. Classism is the greatest ism of them all. Have a fantastic day. 
And if you have a challenge to what I say, or if you are supporting what I say, hey, comment, man. Uh, hit me up so we can do a podcast together. I love contrasting thoughts, not because uh, I like arguing, but because I like to hear the other side, because I know that I'm 90% right. And there's a 10% that you have that can correct me and make me 100% right. So let's go from there. Until next time.